I'm going to read um, Psalm 2 this evening. Let's read this together. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, tonight I'm going to have Ian come up and uh, jump into our Genesis time, and he gets he gets the Tower of Babel. So, That's the one. and we're excited to hear from him because it's been a while. So, Ian, take it over. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Mm. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. It's been a while. It really feels like it's it's been two and a half months actually since I've had the opportunity to be with, here with with everybody. Um, so it's good to be back. Um, I've never used a computer before to do this. I'm trying new foolish things. I told my wife I was going to do this, and she said, don't do it. I was like, just once. Let me try it just once. So we'll see how it goes. Why don't you grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 10 if you haven't done it yet. Um, got a few things that, that you might find interesting. So the ark has landed. And Noah and his family have dispersed. And what, one of the things that we see is this, is this, new, this new chance at, a, at, a, at, a, at Eden. It's a new start. Um, and Noah, Noah, Noah blows it pretty quickly. Um, and so here we have this cycle again and again and again of, of, a, of a chosen one coming through the flood and, and Eden once again being tainted and, and once again a human being pr proving that they are not yet the seed that we are to be expecting. And so we're going we're gonna to pick the story up from there in chapter 10. So this is the account of, of how the nations of the world or of the known world dispersed. After the flood, there was Noah and his family, and so how did we get where we are today? Well, this, this tells us the start of that story. So follow along with me. Starting in chapter 10, verse 1, we read this. This is the account. I'll just stop right there. So this, this account, <laughs> this account starts here in chapter 10, verse 1, and it's going to finish at the end of the Tower of Babel. So, we're, so this chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 9, is, is the account that is being spoken of here. This is the account of what has happened. Noah's, of, of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons born to them after the flood. 
The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Yavon and Tubal and Meshech and Tirez. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Rephath and Togamar. The sons of Yavon were Elisha, Elisha and Tarshish and Katim and Dodanim. And from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families and their nations. So just, just take note of that. Take note of verse five. We're gonna see this a few times. Everyone according to, the, to, to their language, to their family, and to their nations. So these are the sons of Japheth. And now the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzarim and Put and Canaan, and the sons of Cush were Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ra'amah, and Sabtekah. The sons of Ra'amah were Sheba, and Dedan. Now, now this, this here, I wanna, I wanna pause here. The sons of Ham, we have a map, we have a slide of a map behind us. I just wanna, wanna get a visual of, 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 of what we're dealing with here and where all of these people ended up. That pop up behind me, it will eventually, I'm sure. Um, the sons of Ham, uh, the descendants of Ham settled in the area of, of, of North Africa. And if you, if you have, uh, certain translations have in verse six, the sons of Ham were Cush, and instead of Mitzarim, you'll have the, the name Egypt there. And that's, that's telling. This, this, this people group settled in the north of Africa, Africa and, and many people groups came out of the area in green and actually became troublesome and, and even enemies of the people of Israel. Um, from here we get the people of, of Egypt, we get the Philistines, we get various groups of the Canaanites, which if you know anything about biblical history, these people proved once and, and again to be troublesome to, to the people of Israel, and this is where they originated. And they settled in North Africa. The sons of, of Shem uh, settled in the area of Mesopotamia and, and down south into, the, into Saudi Arabia, which you see in the yellow. And Yafeth and his descendants settled in the north uh, towards Europe, uh, Asia Minor, and, uh, and heading east from there. And so this is just, a, this is just an idea of what we're dealing with. One of, one of the things that, that, that bugged me as I got older is that I, you know, I, I sat in church and I listened to sermons, and, 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 and particularly in Jesus' ministry, he went up to Tyre, he went over to Sidon, he went down into Jerusalem, and then to Sychar, and across the Jordan, and back across the Jordan, and the Sea of Galilee. And I, I must have been in my late 20s before I was like, I don't know where any of these places are. I don't even know, like, th like this could be some made-up J.R.R. Tolkien world, and I wouldn't know it because I've never taken the time to look at a map. And so it just, it helped me to just look at a map and see, like, this was a, these are real people in a real place on, on this earth. These places are still around today. You can still go. And archaeology is digging up uh, the, the past and finding relics from these people all the time. It's, it's really an incredible history to, to dive into. And so this is, this is the area of the world that we're dealing with. These are the people groups, and, and the sons of Ham, the descendants of Ham, will prove to be uh, trouble again and again. And, and, and really, we get into the meat of that here in verse 8. We read that Cush was the father of Nimrod, and he began to be a valiant warrior on the earth. He was like a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So this guy, Nimrod, uh, his name means rebellion, or we will rebel. And he was a mighty hunter. He's, the, the word here is the word gibor. 
He was, a, he was a gibor, he was a mighty hunter, he was a valiant man, he was a warrior. And what's really interesting is that this is the same word that's used to describe the Nephilim in chapter six. We read that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. And these were mighty men, they were gibor, they were men of renown. And so one of, the, one of the questions that comes up is, okay, so if there was, in, in, in chapter six, there's a Nephilim, but then we have this giant flood, and that should have taken care of all this business. And so there's, there's varying schools of thought on this, because we do see the Nephilim again in, in Numbers 13, when the spies go in to, to, to check out the land, and they come back, and they're like, hey, the land is great, and they've got grapes the size of basketballs, uh, but the Nephilim are there. And so there's some conversation about what that means. And, and, and some people say it's simply, it's simply this. It's that the, the mindset of the Gabor, the, the, the one who, who dominates and has social standing and makes his way or her way in the world by violence and war and intimidation. So whenever it's describing the Nephilim, it's just the, the attitude of the Nephilim. And I, I, I honestly don't have a, a real strong take on this. It's a conversation I'd like to continue to have um, with people much smarter than me. But it's interesting that here, this guy Nimrod is, is described as, as a Gibor. And that's why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is, this is essentially, if you, if you grew up anywhere near a basketball court, maybe in the, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, anytime somebody on the basketball court did something slick, whether it was like, it was a, if it was a sick three-point shot or if it was a layup or something like that, somebody on the court would go, Kobe, because Kobe was one of the best. And so anytime you did something good, or if you got your car running with some duct tape and some bubble gum, someone would be like, ah, the guy's a real MacGyver. You know, that's, that's the same idea. Like Nimrod was, he was noteworthy and he was so good and so slick at what he did that if you did something with some level of sophistication at all, someone would go, hey, Nimrod. He's a, he's a man of renown. He's a man, he's a man who's known around town. And he's quite busy. Verse 10, the primary regions of his kingdom, the primary regions of his kingdom, he has a kingdom, were Babel. Ring a bell? The primary regions of his kingdom were Babel and Arek and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from, from there he went to the land of Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, and Kalah. So this guy, this, this mighty warrior is the workhorse behind Babylon and behind Assyria and behind Nineveh, and I, and I got to put in a, a, a quick shameless plug right now. Gentlemen in the room, I'm going to be taking over men's pastor uh, role here, I mean, pretty much effective immediately. And one of the things that I want to do in 2024 is, is go through the book of Jonah, and, and, uh, and Nineveh is where Jonah was commanded to go. The, voice, the word of the Lord came to, Nineveh, came to Jonah, and he said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah went 2,500 miles the opposite direction. It was a brutal people. It was a brutal people group. And this guy, Nimrod, built Nineveh. And he's behind Babylon and Assyria. And if you know what, you know what this means, I mean, these, these, are the, these are the nations that took Israel into captivity. Assyria came in in 722 BC and took out the northern tribes and, and wiped them off the map, took them into captivity, and they, and they never came, came back again. You can read about this in 2 Kings 17. In 722 BC, they came in and they wiped out the northern tribes, or the northern kingdom, and then in, the, in uh, 586 
BC. It was sort of a long, slow process, but Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdoms and took them into Babylon, uh, Babylonian captivity, which is where they, they came back from, which is what we just went through in our Nehemiah series. I mean, this, this is where these people groups and kingdoms and, and cities originated. This is their origin story right here. This guy, Nimrod, uh, was one of the primary people behind all of these kingdoms that came in and, and were really bad news to the, people, to the people of Israel. And so here he is, the mighty man Nimrod. And so from that land, he went into Assyria where he built Nineveh and verse 12 and Resin, which is between Nineveh and that great city, Kala. Verse 13. And Mitzirim was the father of the Ludites and the Anamites and the Lehabites and the Naphtuhites and the Parthusites and the Kalsluhites from whom the Philistines came. There they are again, the Philistines, David and Goliath. This guy, Nimrod. And the Kaphtorites. And so Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the, the Hamathites. And eventually, the families of the Canaanites were scattered, and the borders of Canaan extended from Sidon all the way to Gerar and Gaza, all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Admah, and Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. And if you, if you look at these places on a map, they pretty much, that's, that's pretty much, a, I believe, a, a, count, a, a, a um, counterclockwise circle around the, the promised land. All these, all, these, all these places that they're naming off. So these are the sons of Ham. Quite a list. According to their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So there that is, we read that again. Their lands, their languages, and their nations. So verse 21, and so there are also born to Shem, the older brother of Yapheth, the father of the sons of Eber. So if I can use this kind of language, these, these are the good guys. The sons of Shem uh, lead to Abraham and his descendants and on. And actually here in, in verse 21 is, is the name where we, where we get the root word for the word Hebrew in Genesis 14, 13, it says that a convict came and spoke to Abram, the Hebrew. And this word here, the, the sons of Eber in verse 21, that is the, that's the root word for the, for the Hebrew name. So the sons of Shem, verse 22, were Elam and Ashur and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz. Does anybody recognize Uz? There once was a man from the land of Uz. Job, Job 1, 1, Job was, was from Uz. Hul and Gether and, and Mash, Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Eber. And two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yokdan. So here, verse 25, the earth was, was divided. There, there's some that, that think that what's being referred to there is that after the flood, this is what caused the continents as we understand them today to, to start to break apart. And so the earth was being divided. Um, the other most prominent belief or thought is that this is actually referring to what occurred at the Tower of Babel, that the earth was divided among all these different languages and people groups where they spread out all over the world. Uh, at least the known world at the time, and I'm inclined to, to go with the latter, um, given that we're just coming over the precipice to the, the story of Babel, and it very much uh, people were divided all over the face of, of the land. Um, seems like 
this guy, Peleg, uh, was alive and well when this took place. And so his brother's name was Yoktan, verse 26. Yoktan was the father of Almadad and Shalef and Hatsar Maveth and Jarah and Hadoram uh, and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abimel and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Yobab. All these were the sons of Yoktan. I can barely handle one baby. This is insane. Their dwelling place was from Mesha all the way to Safar in the eastern hills. And these are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and according to their nations. And so there it is. We read that again. And so these are the families of Noah according to their genealogies and by their nations. And from these, the nations spread over the earth after the flood. So... When you've got the challenge that I have, which, you know, I don't want to put this on anybody, but I read the Bible and I, I, I often run into it. Wait, wait. Hold on. This doesn't make any sense. There's multiple places here where it says they, they, were, they, were, they were split up. This is them according to their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then chapter 11 starts off the whole earth had a common language. And what's happening here, and I've, and I've learned a little, about, a little bit about this uh, recently. This is one of the beautiful tactics of, of the authors of, of not just Genesis, but really of, of the Bible. One of the things that, that, is, that, that, that they employ is they describe the effects of something. And then they go back and they describe the event that caused those effects. And so what's, what we're reading here is, is actually... So, so many generations have passed. How many, I, don't even, I didn't take the time to count how many generations we just went through. But we've gone through many, many, many generations. And somewhere in there, the Tower of Babel occurred. And this is relaying the information. These people from there spread out over the face of the earth by their languages, by their lands, and by their families. And so chapter 11 is sort of a rewind. Here's where we are in the, in the, in the history. Now let's rewind and tell everybody how we got there. And so chapter 11 starts out, the whole earth had one common language and a common vocabulary. And I just, I love that idea. That in the, this is what we're going to be, be talking about for the next few minutes. The whole, the whole earth, all of these people, eight people out of the ark turns into this massive population and they all had one lip is actually the Hebrew word. They all shared one lip, one language. The whole earth shared one lip and they had a common vocabulary. And vo the, the idea behind the word vocabulary isn't restricted to just the specific words that they used, but also the ideas that they shared. The whole earth had one lip and one mindset. They all thought very similarly. And so the people moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar, which is what we just read about in chapter 10, verse 10. They found a plain in Shinar and they settled there and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick instead of stone and they had tar instead of mortar. And you might think, so what? Brick, tar, mortar, like what's, what's the difference? It's thousands of years ago, it's really not that impressive. Today we have stucco, we have asbestos, we got things that really work, you know. But this is speaking to something, this is speaking to technological advancements. They're, they're, they're making progress. It, I mean, this isn't, this isn't completely unlike saying like they, they went from having a landline to an iPhone 13, or they went from the horse-drawn the horse carriage to the, the 
SR5V6. I mean, they're, they're making progress in technology. And it's, it's really an amazing thing. And it's, a, and it's a good thing. People are creative. We're made in the image of God. And so this is a technological advancement that's being, that's being mentioned here. They, they, they no longer had to go out into the wilderness and find, I don't know, thousands or millions of stones. Now they can just mass produce them. They don't have to chisel a stone down to be those perfect 90 degree corners. They can just mass produce these bricks. It's easy, it's a little cheap, but hey, you know, anything mass produced is cheaper. But they're, they're getting wise. They're getting wise, they're getting advanced. They're making things happen. And so they said, Verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered across the face of the entire earth. So I think that it's, I think that it's good that we're creative. Humans are unbelievably brilliant. We create culture. We create things. We, we improve things. We we invent, we create art, we create music, we create infrastructure, we've created cities, we've, we've done some really amazing thing. And the, the, problem, the problem isn't being innovative or creative, the, the, the problem is what we start to do with those things. We, we were told to be fruitful and multiply and that's a good thing. And I, and I think that being creative and innovative is, is, really a, is really part of what that means. But everything that we get our hands on, we take a good gift and we start to use those gifts to create distance and autonomy from the very God who gave us those gifts. And so these, these people have creativity. They've got, they've got they're, they're, they're wise. They're winsome. They're creative and they start to create and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And I, that we're going we're gonna to make our own little Eden. You know, and I, and I think that we still see this today, and maybe you even see this in your own heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I got, and I'm going to create my own little Eden. People want to create their own little Eden apart from the Lord. They want to divorce from him and be, be independent of him. Take his gifts and his goods and his earth and do our own, our own thing. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Lest we be scattered. The first thing that the Lord said, he, he said it in the garden and he said it when they got off the ark. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And they want to do, do the opposite of that. They have thought it advantageous to, to unify and to grow in power and in strength in a way that elevates self. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to they create something so that even when they're dead and gone, their name will live on. And we still, see, we still see this today. I see, it, I see it in my own life. Wanting to do something that, that gives me value, that puts my name on the map. Like, the, like the, those stars on, on the, the Hollywood sidewalk that's got all, the, all, all the, the names of celebrities that have come and gone over the years. I've never been there, but that's the, that's the idea here. Like we want something that lasts. And so we, we do it divorced from God and apart from him. Lest we be scattered. This is what they want to avoid. They want to avoid being scattered. They're, they're making a name for themselves lest we be scattered over the face of the entire earth. I think that they want to have real life and significance without the Lord. I think, I think you can say it as simple as that. They want to have significance. They want to be everlasting. They, they want to last but they want to do it apart from their creator. And this is where their smarts are, they've kind of gotten too smart for their own good, you know? So the Lord comes down and he sees the city 
and the tower that the people had started building. And the Lord said, if as one people all sharing a common language they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be beyond them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other, so that they won't be able to understand each other. Some of the literal Hebrew phrases here are so, are so great. What that actually says is they will not hear a man the lip of his neighbor. I just think that's funny. They will not hear a man the lip of his neighbor. Let's go down and let's, let's, confuse, let's confuse their language. Part of what, part of the, I think one of the hyperlinks that we see here is, is this continuation of, of God giving human beings an opportunity or giving them protection, giving them a resource, giving them a garden, and then human beings distrusting the Lord and taking matters into their own hands. We did it with the tree. I think that whenever the Lord put a mark on Cain as a mark of protection, he, he went and he built a city to protect himself. And ironically, the city became a hotbed for violence. The city, the city became unsafe. We have Nimrod here, who's the, the workhorse behind creating all of, these, all of these kingdoms and all of these empires because he, they, they want to produce a name for themselves and they're trying to do it away from the good God that created them. They want to divorce themselves from him, but they want to be safe. They want to make a name for themselves and they're doing it away from him and so they're scattered. So the Lord, verse eight, scattered them from across the face of the entire earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why the name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the entire world and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. And when you read this, I, I, I know that I've read this before years ago and I thought God must be a little bit intimidated by us. That, that kind of is what it sounds like, right? Like he comes down and he's like, man, you know what? Nothing that these guys do is gonna be beyond them. If they're unified, they have one language, they have one vocabulary, they're gonna be able to accomplish anything that they put their mind to, and I can't have that. And that's not what's happening here. God is not jealous of our mud bricks. He's not jealous of our iPhone 13s. This is a protection. Because the, what they want isn't wrong. They want to last. They're, they want to live, for. they want to be eternal. And anybody knows that when you lose something good, when you lose love, there's that, there's that thing inside of you. The Bible tells us that, 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 that eternity has been put into the heart of mankind and we know that it's true. And so we fight to not age. We fight to not, to, for our bodies to not get, you know, we start, to, we start to hurt, things start to break, rotator cusp and, and the... And, and, and your hips and your shoulders start to go out, you start to lose your hair, you start to grow, and we hate this. Like there's something about it that's just so wrong. And it, this, of course, is highlighted the most in death. It feels, it feels wrong. We know in our bones that there's something wrong with it. It's not wrong to want to live forever. We were made to do so. And what the Lord is doing here is he's taking, the, what, what they want is not wrong, but their means are misguided, and the Lord is directing their attention elsewhere. He's directing their attention away from their sandcastles and back to him. And have you, has this ever happened in your life? Can you, can you recount a time that it seemed like the Lord stopped you from doing something, scattered things about, and you wondered why? May I suggest that the good God of, the, who knows everything, and is full of compassion and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is doing something 
for your good. He, he scatters them. And this is the same, the same language that we see in Genesis chapter 3. After, after, the, after Adam and Eve took of the fruit, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And so lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. God scattered them. They want to last forever. And I would say that from the Bible, I can say confidently that the Lord wants us to last forever too. You know what Jesus said to a group of people who really didn't understand what he was about and what he was doing? He turns to him and he says, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The king, he, it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That means that he really is really, really happy to do it. He wants you in heaven. And we know from, from Daniel chapter 7 and from many places in Scripture that that kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It will last forever. It will never go away. His kingdom is forever and his dominion is everlasting. And it is the Father's good pleasure to give you that kingdom. On the last night that he was with his disciples, Jesus said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you so that wherever I am, you may be there also. I don't know what Babel could have been, but it would have been bad for the people. It would have been bad for the people. And, and you, guys, you, guys know, you guys know my story. I mean, this is, this is why I'm a Christian. When I was tw in my early 20s, I did everything in my power to create my own little Eden. I had my physical health, I had my mental health, I had money in the bank, I had a girl on my arm, I had a plane ticket to Ireland, I had it all set. And I've, I've, I've told this story before, everything was scattered. The plane trip was gone, the money was gone, my health went down the tubes, I was in the hospital, two different surgeries, spitting blood in a bucket, the day that my flight took off, and I was so angry. I was so angry because I didn't understand the character of the good God who was gracefully showing me love before I was even asking for it. It was his kindness that led me to repentance. And, and, and I am an absolutely believing and completely trustworthy that whatever that babble was that I was building, whatever that Eden was that I had in mind, Back in 2010, it would have been bad for me. Ireland would have been bad for me. That girl would have been bad for me. My mom is so stoked to hear me say that. She was telling me that from day one. Every, all of that stuff would have been bad. And I trust the Lord for taking it away. He's not vindictively just like frying ants with a magnifying glass. You know, we've got to get this idea of God out of our head. And, and I, I feel passionate about that because I thought that that's what he is like for so long. You read stories like this in your Bible and it's easy for the devil to trick you and think, see, he's vindictive, he's manipulative, he's capricious. You can't ever trust what he's going to do. You're going to build a Jenga tower. He's going to blow it over just to say that he did. He's not a bully. There is an area of judgment here. He's judging their, he's putting a stop to their hubris but he's also graciously leading them away from, a, from, from death. He's leading them away from putting their faith in the wrong thing. I read, in a, I read in, a, in a novel one time, I wasn't planning on saying this, hopefully this doesn't make me take too much time, but there is the, the author put into the mouth of one of his characters, who was this, 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 this character in this novel was a woman who was very cynical and, and she said, I don't remember the, the full context of the conversation, but the, the line that she said in the novel was, oh yeah, 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 God, 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 me, 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 pray to me, worship me, sing songs to me, 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 what an insecure deity. And I remember at the time that I read that, I was like, yeah, I mean, that, I, yeah, kind of seems that way, doesn't it? But here's the, thing about, here's the thing about our Lord, here's the thing about Yahweh. 
we need him. We need him. And so he's the only one who, like, like, emphasizing himself to us is an act of love. Because he is what we need. Babel would have fallen eventually anyways. All of these lands, all of these people groups, all of these people, they're gone. And we're not far behind them. We need something, we need someone who lasts forever. And Jesus defeated death. So that's taken care of. We have life in his name. He brought life and immortality to light. And the Lord in his mercy leads these people away from making a really bad mistake and and putting their faith and their trust and their hope in their name instead of his. And you know what's really cool? There's the reversal of this in Acts chapter two. All of these people that spread out all over the world all these different languages, they came together again in a moment in Acts chapter two. Let me, let me read this to you. So Jesus has gone to the cross. He has been buried. He is raised from the dead. He is victorious. He has ascended back into heaven. And now his, his, the 11 that are left are gonna go out and spread the gospel to the entire world and they've got some of their cronies with them and there's a hundred or so of them up in a room just praying and waiting for the Lord and we pick up the story in Acts chapter two. Now on the day of Pentecost, so there was a feast in Jerusalem, the feast of Pentecost, and that day had come. And so they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting and tongues interesting tongues like fire rested on each one of them and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit filled them now there are devout Jews from every other nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem people from all over that that map that we just looked at a few minutes ago oh that one that's still there people from all over came into Jerusalem for this feast the Holy Spirit comes in The Christians are speaking languages that they had never spoken before as the Spirit enabled them and the devout Jews from every nation came in and they said, what is this, what is this sound? What is this? As the crowd gathered together, there was total confusion, verse eight, because each one had heard the Christians speaking in his own language. And completely baffled, they said, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? That's that's one specific place on the globe. Are they not all Galileans? So how is it now that each of us hears them speaking in our native language? The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and the province of Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome. Rome was a long ways away. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. That's basically that whole map right there. Where all of the nations spread, they came together in Jerusalem. And there's the list. And we hear them speaking in our own language about the great deeds that God has done. This is so rad. People came in from all over, speaking all these different languages, all these different cultures, all these different people groups, and they, heard, they came together and they heard the gospel preached. They unified, not around self, not around hubris or self-exaltation. They came around the person of Jesus. They heard the gospel preached, and that day 3,000 souls were added to the church. Many of them stayed around. They got jobs. They stayed in Jerusalem. They stuck around the hot spot, but a lot of them went back, and the gospel went all over this, all the, over this area. 
It's a beautiful reality. They came unified as a single people group, as the church, basically, the, early, the earliest steps of the church. They came around the person of Jesus Christ. And so, in our story, they're scattered all across the face of the earth. That's what we read in chapter 10, verse 32. They were scattered all over the face of the earth. Okay, so, verse 10. This is the account of Shem. And you think, we didn't we just do that? Yeah, 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 we did. Um, but we're gonna, we're gonna get straight to Abram now. We're gonna go straight down the line to Abram. So, this is the account of Shem, verse, verse 10. Shem was 100 years old when he became the father of Arphaxad. Now, I always ignorantly just had this image in my brain of Noah and his wife and their, and their sons. And for some reason in my mind, I just, his sons were my age, like 35 to 40. I don't know why, I just wasn't thinking. But this was two years after the flood. So he became the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood, and he's 100 years old. Dude was in his late 90s. Noah's sons were like up and over their fourth hill by the time the flood even came. That's just amazing, that's just amazing. I know that the, the, the 90s weren't, you know, they weren't as, 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 as old back then, but still that's just an impressive thing to think about. And so becoming, after becoming the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. After he'd become the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, he, he went on to live 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Paleg. And after he became the father of Paleg, he lived 430 years and had sons and daughters. When Paleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he had become the father of Serug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. After he had become the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. Notice how the, the ages are getting a little bit less, a little bit less. A little bit less. And Nahor lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he had become the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And so this is the account of Terah. He became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the land of his birth, the Ur of the Chaldees, while his father Terah was still alive. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, who was the father both of Milcah and Ishka. But Sarai was barren, and she had no children. And so that's, that's if, you're, if you're following from Genesis 1 to here, that, that is an interesting detail because we're in, we're in the, the brief fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and, and now there's this, inter, there's this intentional detail that there's a family who, who aren't able to bear, there's a man and wife who aren't able to bear children. And so, and so Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, his, the son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, 
his son Abram's wife, and they set out from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. And they came to Haran and they settled there. And the lifetime of Terah was 205 years, and he died in Haran. An interesting point before, before we, we cross the threshold into chapter 12, just a few things to keep in mind and, and to think about is we just, again, we've covered so many generations of people. I have no idea how many generations. I know I do this for a living, but I don't even have that kind of time to figure out. I'm sure Tim Mackey's just got the answer off the top of his head. But we've covered generation after generation after generation after generation. And here at the end of chapter 11, beginning in chapter 12 until the end of the book, the next what is that, 38 or 39 chapters, there's going to be, we're going to cover four generations. So we're going to slow way down. We're going to focus in on, on we're, going to, we're going to hone in on, on one guy and his descendants starting in chapter 12. And it's just something to think about. There's, there's been the flood. There's been Babel. There's been this spreading of people all over the known world, all these different languages, all these different cultures, all these different people groups. And we're going to hone in on one guy. The Lord's going to pick one man seemingly at random, and he's gonna make a people group from this man, Abram. And the question that, that I, it just sort of was looming in my mind is, well, what, what kind, like, with all these people and with all this drama, you've got, you've got Babylon in the mix, you've got Assyria in the mix, you've got the Philistines coming out of the word work, you've got all this stuff, you've got Gibors, mighty men, they're fighting, they're hunting. What kind of people are God's people going to be? What kind of people is, is, is God going to to, to take out and, 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 and make a nation? What, what are these people gonna be like? And I think that it's simply, I think simply put, you could summarize it and just keep this in mind. Deuteronomy 6, verses four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the Lord here takes a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and immediately thrusts him into a relationship that is absolutely dependent on faith, trust, and obedience. Check this out. The Lord came to Abram. Who's, who's Abram? <laughs> Who is this guy? He just shows that the Lord just, just comes in and he says, go out, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. He's, he's not leaving any room for any question. He tells him to leave his country. He tells him to leave his family. He tells him to leave uh, his, his household. Leave, leave everything. Like every, everything that you could, every resource that you have, like everything where you could put your trust, your entire people group, your family heritage, your history, leave. Uh, why? Just go to, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you something. Go to the land where I show you. And I, I can't help, again, I can't help but think of this because we, we so easily can set up really good things as ultimate things. Really good things are the most suspect to become our ultimate idols. And the Lord is taking these away from Abram and making him step into absolute faith and obedience. And it, it actually, it made me think, the, the words of Psalms 46 came into, came into mind. And Psalms 46 says this, says, God is our refuge. Yahweh is our refuge and our strength. Not our family, not our country, not our household, not our lineage, not our history. Yahweh is our, is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though even the earth gives away, gives away, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, we will not fear. 
though the earth gives away. Never mind your tower. Never, never mind your name being brought up in some infrastructure, some corporation, some, never mind that. What if, what if the earth itself crumbles? What if you watch K2 or, or Mount Everest fall into the ocean? There, there's no insurance coverage for that. There's no 401k that's going to keep you safe. Even if the earth gives way, Yahweh is our refuge. And I just, again, I just, I hear, I hear the truth that the Lord will pry our fingers off of things whenever we hold too tight. Family, lineage, home, all of these are good. All of them are gifts. But Yahweh is our refuge and our strength. And so the Lord comes to Abram and he says, leave these things, trust me, and go to a land that I will show you. Verse 2, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and so that you will exemplify divine blessing. He says, I will make your name great. Abram doesn't have to strategize. He doesn't have to plan. He doesn't have to put away in a, in a savings account. He doesn't have to get life insurance. He doesn't, all he has to do is trust the Lord. The Lord is saying, don't depend on your own sufficiency, your, your own ability to build a tower of Babel or whatever else. Leave all that. Trust me, I will make your name great. That's what the people wanted. Let us build a name for ourselves. Let us construct a tower whose top goes into the heavens. The Lord says, leave everything. I will make your name great. And you know what? There is no other way. There is no other safety. There is no other hope. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Abram, get up and go. I will make your name great. You will, you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. This is, this is a Bible that Josh gave me. This is the NET. Um, your, your translation may say, those who curse you, I will curse. To, to treat lightly just means to treat with, with insignificance. To treat, as, to treat as worthless. Those who treat you as worthless, as insignificant, he says, I must curse. So that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. All the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. Notice that the Lord gave Cain an, a mark for protection. The Lord put Adam and Eve in the garden. The Lord is speaking protective language over Abram right now. Those that bless you, I will bless. And the one who treats you lightly, I must curse so that all the families of the earth may receive a blessing through you. And you know, friends, you, you read through the Bible and, and, you, and you realize very quickly, especially when you get to the gospel accounts, that people, people missed this. All the, families, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. There came to be a belief in the Jewish culture that we were the chosen people. You snooze, you lose. Too bad, so sad. We're in, you're out. Bon voyage. Gentiles were considered dirty. Anybody who's not a, an Israelite, anyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile. Everybody else is a Gentile. And the, and the Jews believed, hey, we're the chosen ones of God. We can direct our lineage all the way back to Abram, Abraham, so we're good. I'm so sorry for your luck, but hey, you know, you can't have everything. That's really what they believed in. And when you read through the gospel accounts and you get into the book of Acts, the, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus were really struggling with this. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman from Samaria and his disciples 
quote unquote, catch him doing it, and they're troubled because he's speaking to a woman who's a Samaritan, and he's speaking to a Samaritan who is a woman. It was a, it was a double dang. He was, he was doing two things that were a social faux pas, but Jesus destroys those distinctions. He destroys those prejudices. He levels them. He's taken the wall of hostility, and he has brought it down, it says in the book of Ephesians. And the disciples, the, the earliest followers of Jesus had to learn this. When you get even into Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter is still struggling with this. You know, he has that vision in Acts chapter 10 of the, the, the sheet coming down full of all these animals that Peter's not supposed to eat. And the Lord, the voice of the Lord says, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no way. I, nothing, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the Lord says, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. There's this guy, Cornelius, go to his house. He needs to hear the gospel. And Cornelius was a Gentile. And Peter gets to his house. He begrudgingly, hesitatingly obeys, gets to the house of Cornelius and is like, I shouldn't be here, but the Lord told me to be here, so I guess I should be here. I'm confused. What do you want? Let's, like, let's get this over with. It's against the law for me to even be here. And Cornelius hears the gospel, and his whole household is saved. Peter gets back to town, and his colleagues are like, bro, you went and had dinner with a Gentile? Gross. And Peter's like, hey, this is actually what Peter says. He retells the whole story. He says, I went down there, I, I, I preached the gospel, they received the spirit, the whole, they got baptized in the spirit right then and there. I watched it happen. He, he says this in chapter 11. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a good point. Who are you that you could stand in God's way? They, they missed this at first. Abram is a blessing to the entire world because through his line, Jesus Christ is born. It didn't, happen, it, didn't, it didn't happen in a day or in a month or in a couple of years, but Jesus Christ came from the line of Abraham. And it's, that's actually how gospel be, the gospel of Matthew begins. All four of the gospel accounts link Jesus to some place in history. John, my personal, my favorite gospel, links Jesus to eternity. In the, word was, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. When the beginning began, the word, that is Christ himself, he already existed. He never had a start date, he, never, he, was never, he was never created. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, he's the second person of the Trinity, he has always existed. Matthew 1 verse one links him directly to Abraham. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so verse four, this is, my prayer for the rest of my life, <laughs> my prayer for everyone, just, Abraham left and did just as the Lord told him to do. That's a great, that's a great start right there. He did just as the Lord told him to do. We, we read the same thing about Noah in chapter seven, verse five. All that the Lord commanded Noah to do, he did. And so Lot went with Abram. And Abram was 75 years old when he, debar when he departed from Haran. Verse five, and so Abram took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired. And so they left for the land of Canaan and they entered the land of Canaan. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the oak tree or the terebinth tree at Morah at Shechem. And at that time there were Canaanites in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And so Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he moved from there to the hill country east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. Bethel means house of God. I means heap of ruins. 
And I think it's just an interesting point that that's where, that's where Abram pitches his tent because we, we, can, we can go one way or the other. Sin is lying at your, at crouching at the door. It's desirous to have you. You may overcome it. It's a house of God on one side, heap of rubble on the other side. And so he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord and Abram continually journeyed by stages down to the Negev. And the Negev is, is the southern part of, of of Canaan, it's in between, on the map, it's in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. He traveled down south to the Negev. And so verse 10, there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to stay a while because the famine was severe. And as he approached Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they're gonna say, hey, this is his wife. And so they'll kill me, but they'll keep you alive. So tell them that you're my sister so that it may go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on account of you. So here's, here's another interesting point of discussion and I'll, I'll, I'll be brief with this, but there's people who, who read this and they go, man, going down to Egypt, not a good move, bro. Not smart. You heard of Egypt before, Abram? Abram hadn't read the Bible yet. He doesn't know what happens. But anytime, there is this image in Egypt, going down into Egypt is, it's typically dangerous. It's not, it's not a good thing to do. And there's people who, there's people who say, you know, the Lord, the Lord said, leave and go where I show you. And I know there was a famine, but you kind of deviated from course whenever you went into Egypt and you were living in fear. The Lord gave you a word of protection, but you were living in fear. And so you went into Egypt and then you got into Egypt and look at what you did. You told a lie. You put your wife into a very dangerous situation that was, I mean, unpredictable at the very least. And then there's other people that go, no, 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 there was a famine, he did what he had to do, he's still on course, it's all good. At least he didn't go back to the land where he had come from. At least he didn't go back to the land that the Lord had called him out from. I'm not really sure that it matters. When I read this in, 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 my, in my gut, what I feel like is that going to Egypt might've been a misstep. It might've been a little bit like, okay, I, you know, the Red Sea's in the way. Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Like, I, I think there's a little bit of a falter of faith there. But don't forget, Abraham went down as the father of faith. But he wasn't perfect. But I love that. God's graces are new every morning. He's, he's happy to forgive. If we confess our sins, it says in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive. And so here we are in Egypt. And Abram just sort of assumes that, well, hey, you know, my wife, you know, she's a good looking gal. The Egyptians are going to see her. They're going to kill me, get the pesky husband out of the way. We got the girl, bada bing, bada boom. Everyone's having cannolis for lunch. It's going to be sick. And so he, he, he concocts this lie. He's like, tell them that you're my sister. They'll leave me alone. They'll take you. And you just got to wonder, like, what was, what was Sarah thinking? Dude, you know, I don't know. I don't know what she was thinking, but I, I suspect that she was trusting the Lord. I suspect that she was trusting the Lord. Abraham was having a bonehead moment. He was having a heap of ruin moment. But his wife was trusting the Lord. He says, tell them that you're my sister, which was a half truth. We're told in chapter 20 that uh, she was the, the, that she is the, Abraham says, she's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So they, they were half siblings. But he just went with the sister part. So that it will go well for me on account of you. And so verse 14, so Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Sure enough, 
And so Pharaoh's officials saw her and they, they praised her to Pharaoh. And so Abram's wife was taken into the household of Pharaoh. And he did treat Abram well on her account. Abram received sheep and cattle and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Now we read this and we're not really impressed. Old MacDonald had a farm and we don't really care, but, but camels back in the day weren't quite as common as we'd like to think that they were. This was, this was significant wealth that they were bestowing on, on Abram. And you've got to sit back and wonder like, okay, he's, he's, he's lied about his situation. He's put his wife in danger. He may not supposed to be in Egypt at all to begin with. Where's the thunder? Where's the, where's the fire and brimstone? Where's the pestilence? Where's the... Where, Abram's just getting blessed. And, and you know, I, I think that, there's, I think that there's a, there is a lot of thoughts about this. But what I would like, what I would like to hone in on is, is that God is a gracious God. And even when we misstep, even when we mistake, and you know, Paul talks about this in his letters. He, he, sa- he says where there is sin, there is, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But don't use that as an excuse to sin. The, the, the conclusion is not, oh great, well then I'll sin a lot so that I get a lot of grace. That's, that's, not, that's not the conclusion there. And so this isn't a like, hey, let's run around and do whatever we feel like at a, at a moment's whim and just expect that we're gonna get hooked up with, with servants and camels. That's, that's not the message here. But I, I think that there is something here that the Lord is still, he's, he's blessing Abram even in the, even in the midst of, of, of a goof, in the midst of sin, in, in the midst of a boneheaded move, motivated by fear, he's still receiving, receiving a blessing. And, and you know, this is what made Jonah so mad. He goes and he preaches a half-hearted message to Nineveh. I don't even know if you could call it preaching. And Nineveh just, just on their face in sackcloth and, axe, and, and ashes. And Jonah goes up to the hilltop and he shakes his fists at God. And he says, I knew you were a God that was gracious. I knew you were a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger. That's why I didn't want to be here. God is so good, it can bug us. He's so good it can bug us, you know, especially when he's good to people that we don't like. It's a problem with our heart. Abram had a problem with his heart. He went into Egypt and just assumed these guys are a bunch of hooligans. They're going to kill me. They're going to steal my wife. But, but look what happens. Verse 17, the Lord, the Lord struck Pharaoh in his household because they took the girl that because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your, why did you tell me that she was not your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And so I took her to be my wife. Now here is your wife, take her and go. It sounds to me like Pharaoh may not have been as bad of a guy as Abram was letting on. Now the story in Exodus is different. That's a totally different Pharaoh. That's a totally different generation. But this guy's like, why did you lie to me? Yeah, I took the girl, but if she was your wife, you know, I I wouldn't have done it. And he doesn't even take his stuff back. He's like, take your wife and go. And so Pharaoh gave men, his men orders about Abram so that they expelled him along with his wife and all his possessions. And I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna just encroach into chapter 13 just, just a little bit, just a, just a verse or two because I, 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 I see God's, this, this cycle of, of God's grace. And, and even, even today, when we get off course, whenever we blow it, whenever we mess up, his grace is new every morning and he welcomes us back to him. He welcomes us back in. 
He wants us to come back to him. Check this out, just, just the first four verses. So Abram went up from Egypt back into the Negev, and he took his wife and his possessions with him as well as Lot. Now Abram was very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. And he journeyed from place to place from the Negev as far as Bethel, and he returned to where he was. I, 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 do, you, do you hear revelation in there? Repent, return to your first love. Return, repent, return to your first love. Repeat, repent and come back. Repent and come back. He returned to the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning between Bethel, the house of God, and I, the the pile of ruin. And this was the place where he had at first built the the altar, and there Abram worshipped the Lord. I love that. We're going to blow it. We're going to mess up. And the Lord in his grace is so patient to invite us back in, to bring us back to where we were before, where we can be with him and we can worship. He's so good. Amen? Amen.